welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. On Legally Brief each week, I ask, how can we make our institutions work for us, for us, whether we're taxpayers, for the next generation, for our children? I draw from many experiences that I've had working in the legal profession, also personal, being a mother, a woman of color, and how it feels to inhabit all of those different worlds. And sometimes these worlds really don't mix well. So for example, if you are a person of color, you often feel as if you straddle two worlds. And there's a term for that. I know that this term has many meanings, but there's a term called code switching. And that basically means if you don't know, it's Knowing how to speak, live, dress, groom yourself, edit yourself, behave in ways that are acceptable in one world, which is a world that we live in a predominantly white, Caucasian or European based America, I should say. And then those same individuals, people of color, black and brown persons, you learn to switch or return to a more natural, easy state when you're around members of your own culture. You feel as if you can relax or let down. You feel as if there's some type of understanding or necessarily a home for yourself. You don't feel necessarily as if you're as on guard. When I write and record these shows, I attempt to look for patterns and ways and things that are happening around us, cases that I can report on, and also documentation. I once heard the saying that when podcast creators or if you write or create copy, it's not so much creating content. It really is documenting what you see and what you experience personally and professionally. That's what I want to do. I want to document what I see, the systemic breaks that we have in our systems when we have to, when an individual has to do what I was talking about before, code switch, and how that affects an individual, how that works on a system, any violations. And with the ultimate goal of helping individuals, myself also, navigate, learn more about these systems. I believe that we all are working together and these podcasts are a weekly invitation to join me to think about these topics and see how we can work together to better move within our institutions in harmony and 
sometimes these systems, they were set up and they will never work properly. And that's why we have to have this conversation, come to understandings and if necessary, redo, rework, restructure them. This week has been, and I say this week, I'm recording this just after Thanksgiving. So I should say the week leading up to Thanksgiving was incredibly busy in relation to the court system. It was unmistakable way that the universe presented different courtrooms, different cases to show us and really highlight where we have breaks, where we have fissures and tears within our institution. Some points last week, I was excited about the Thanksgiving holiday. There's something about everyone just seems to be in a lighter mood. There's a better energy collectively that we all have. I, in particular, I know that the holidays are not happy or something to look forward for everyone. I understand that. But in particular, I was looking forward to seeing my brother, my sister, my mom, who is getting older, was making the trip to see me. And in particular, I was so excited to see my nephew. So we are a family or a next generation where there's only boys, the, the nephews, I like to call them. I have two boys, my sister has two boys, and my brother has a son. And so that was where the mindset, I was working hard on some cases, but there was just that lightness and that anticipation that I was going to be around those people that I love. And <laughs> within their presence, there would be no need to code switch. While I was looking forward to that, I couldn't help what was going on that week on the stages of our courts where judges, juries, and defendants, witnesses from courtrooms in Georgia, Wisconsin, and upstate New York were showing us how we still have so much incredible work that has to be done. Or <laughs> at the end of watching some of these courtroom fights, battles. I also, I felt, you know, when I say there's work that has to be done, at some points I felt absolutely hopeless that maybe there, maybe this is just the way it is within our court systems. And that's what I want to focus on for this episode. So in Georgia, we had the Ahmad Aubrey case. For those of you that do not know, Ahmad Aubrey was a young African-American male who was murdered while he was jogging in his neighborhood, not far from the home that he shared with his family. He was murdered. The murder involved three uh, white males who were driving by. We now know that they were convicted. The painful part of this entire case was that for several months, these the taping of his murder existed. It was reviewed, investigated by the prosecutor's office, the local prosecutor's office. There was involvement of alleged cover-up by the local police. There was interference by the suspects, now convicted murderers or interference, so that this case and the investigation would go no further. So again, if we hadn't, and this is ha when I say again, this has happened before where you tapes or evidence is revealed after a murder investigation is closing or is closed that show that there is definitive evidence that would lead to a conviction. And that is one of the things that makes you feel hopeless about how the workings of the court systems are, how the investigations of law enforcement. If you didn't have these tapes, the Aubrey family would have been left without any true understanding of what had happened to their son. That was particularly hard as I was so looking forward to seeing my nephews, seeing my sons all 
men of color, men and boys, my youngest, I guess I could still call him a boy. That left me feeling so sad because when I see these individuals, when I see Ahmaud Arbery, I see my son jogging down the street. I see my son skateboarding. I see my son riding riding a bike or hanging out with his friends. And I think of the Arbery family. I think of so many other parents out there. And that's what leaves you feeling hopeless. In the case of Ahmad Aubrey and the conviction, the guilty verdicts that were returned for these individuals, you turned on and you heard commentators who were ecstatic about the guilty verdicts. What was troubling and what we now know is the different pieces of evidence, the defense, the conduct of the judge in that case, who made very prejudicial comments who appeared, I did not watch every moment of the trial. I did not read the transcript. It appeared from what my research and understanding is, is that as to the judge and the juries within the Ahmad Aubrey case, there seemed to have been the court system did work in that case. And when I say did work, forget about the ultimate, the conviction of these three men. It was, it appeared that the judge was impartial. He heard the arguments of the attorneys. The jury asked for crucial pieces of evidence during their deliberations. And it appeared that the mechanisms, the process, it worked depending on which side you're on. You heard commentary from the attorneys who represented the accused. They said that they were upset. They were saddened for their clients. There was one of the individuals on the defendant's legal team who said that she was shocked by the verdict. So regardless of where you come down on the conviction in the Aubrey case, it seemed that the system did work. Now, Let's also go to the Wisconsin case of Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse is a man of white background, European ancestry, from what we can tell, who was videotaped using an assault rifle to kill and injure marchers as they gathered. They were The marchers were there because they were uh, speaking out. They were protesting the killing of a black man by a Kenosha, Wisconsin police officers. During that trial, I watched as the defense attorneys, they brilliantly, I think, executed a tool really used in criminal trials and often not recommended by attorneys. And that tool is having your client take the witness stand in their defense. This is something that you think long and hard about, and it's not used a lot. But what I saw is Kyle Rittenhouse, who appeared to me, this is my impression, a clean-faced, you know, baby-faced individual in a tie and suit, at some points crying, but at other points evading and being not responsive or not answering key questions. I saw a portion of the presentation by the prosecutor's case and several commentators on print and the television media criticized that prosecutor as not being experienced not presenting a compelling case. As I was saying before, this to me was a display of the court system not working and failing us. The judge in that case did not appear to be impartial. He appeared to show unduly favoritism or, in my opinion, bias toward the accused, Mr. Rittenhouse. And here's something that matters. When you're in court, it reminds me of when you're on a plane and you're flying thousands of feet, 30,000 feet above the sky. You are 
helpless. You look to the stewards and stewardess who are walking up and down the, the aisles. You look to the voice of the pilot coming over the intercom to let you know that things are okay, especially in instances where you are going through rough turbulence. You look around, you catch the eye of a stewardess. And if they have a look of concern on their face, that just makes your stomach drop even more. They impact you. The same is true when you're in a courtroom. Jurors, litigants, the parties, the attorneys are looking to the judge. The judge plays a key role in how sets the tone of the courtroom, sets the tone amongst the attorneys, and is a very important person within that courtroom. So in this case, you had jurors who are inferring, looking at, and getting messaging from a judge who, from what we can tell, displayed favoritism and bias in favor of Kyle Rittenhouse. The trial lasted several days. The jury deliberated for several hours. And we found out that there was a complete, on all charges, a return of not guilty. It's my understanding that from the charging sheet of the charges that the jury was to deliberate over, take back in their room and deliberate and return a decision of either guilty or not guilty, that the charge of the possession of a weapon was removed. I don't know if there was a lesser included charge on that jury sheet. It's something that I'm going to find out. But it was removed because I was shocked that one, you know, there was the the defense, Kyle Rittenhouse attorneys put forward that he was acting in self-defense and therefore was justified. But it was curious as to why there was no return for the possession of a weapon. It's interesting also to go back and view the tape of Mr. Rittenhouse holding this weapon walking by several police officers and there's no inquiry as to why this individual is holding a weapon. But then that's a that's another break within the justice system that we're not really going to focus on today. So there was a return of a not guilty verdict. What was sad in that instance, as in all of these cases, is the lives that were lost. Uh, briefly, a moment about that. So Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed an individual by the name of Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber. He also injured, and I'm going to say this name incorrectly, Gage Grosskuterts. And I'm going to spell that because that's worth spelling. It's G-R-O-S-S-K-R-E-T-U-Z. I apologize for saying that name incorrectly. And according to reports in the newspaper, The Sun, Mr. Rosenbaum, he died after being shot in the head on, on that day in August 25, 2020, 2020. And he has a three-year-old daughter. He had lived in Waco, Texas. He was there because he was wanted to show support for the Black Lives Matter movement and the killing of the African-American male by the Kenosha Police Department. The other victims in that case, Gage, he was the only person that survived Kyle Rittenhouse shooting. He actually testified at the trial. We also know that he is 
27 years old. He mentioned during his testimony or during the course of this trial, he mentioned that he thought that Kyle Rittenhouse was an active shooter. And as he said that he believed that Kyle Rittenhouse was going to kill him, he believed that he would die. Anthony Huber was 26 years old. He succumbed to the bullet wound by Mr. Rittenhouse. He was also there demonstrating. He was there with his girlfriend who the girlfriend, Hannah Gittins, who gave an interview on CNN and said that Mr. Huber, Anthony, he spotted Kyle Rittenhouse and saw that he was armed. She said that her boyfriend, Anthony, he pushed her out of the way, grabbed her and essentially protected her. So we fast forward to the investigation, to the trial, and Mr. Rittenhouse was found not guilty on all counts. There was fallout from that. But I think the the most essential thing for our discussion and for what when we talk about change agents, when we talk about disruptors to our system, what I always saw as being a change agent when I was working as a prosecutor and then later on when I worked defending individuals who are accused by their government, that the process is what matters. Any attorney, you'll hear it a thousand times, will say if they're working or if they're representing someone who's been accused in a state or federal court, that their number one job is to ensure that the process works. Because any day, it could be your child, it could be your father, it can be your mother. And it's essential that regardless of the stance, the position of the client, it is essential that you work to make sure that the government, that the prosecutors follow the rules and that we can have some faith in what's going on in the court system. Then the last case that brought my attention and made it a busy week in our court system was in upstate New York. There was a plea arrangement, a plea deal entered into Christopher, a man by the name or a young man by the name of Christopher Belter. And Christopher entered a plea whereby, based on information that he had raped teenage girls. And according to the New York Times, this took place in his family and his parents' upstate New York home. The home was known for, it's reported, allegedly, they would have house parties there. It was teen gatherings. And at these gatherings, there are allegations that liquor is being consumed, Adderall, and different controlled substances. One of the allegations by a minor, these are minor girls, these are these are allegations of rape, was that the young girl with the initials MM spent the night at Christopher's home, Christopher Belcher's home. The girl, a friend of Belcher's sister, and he asked her to the room. He threw her on the bed, pulled off her clothes, stopped, demanded that she stop acting like a baby. This is according to the New York Times and court documents, and then proceeded to sexually assault her. This happened with three other girls. At the time, he was facing up to or over eight years in prison. That's when the case was being prosecuted or being considered by before the guilty plea. When the plea was entered and before 
Judge Matthew Murphy III, and this is in Niagara, New York County Court. He sentenced him, instead of jail time, he sentenced him to probation. And the judge in his comments during the sentencing said that he agonized over the decision. It's reported that the judge went on to say, it seems to me that a sentence that involves incarceration or in pretrial incarceration isn't appropriate. He said that instead the probation would be a sword hanging over this young man's head for the next eight years, but offered no explanation as why, as to why the sentence, prison sentence wasn't considered. Clients who heard this and their attorneys for the young girls, extremely frustrated. One attorney went on to say that if Chris Belter was a, was not a white defendant from a rich, an influential family, he would surely have been sentenced to prison. That also was jarring to me when I think about the notion of code switching and I think about how you live in two different worlds and the goal of making our systems run on really one track instead of two tracks that serves one group of individuals one way and a different set of individuals in an absolutely biased, unfavorable way, those individuals being persons of color. When I saw that this guilty plea and the sentencing, I thought of my son being there. And if he was accused of raping three young girls, would he have the benefit of no pretrial detention and a sentence that included only probation? From what I can see anecdotally, as well as statistically, he would not have that benefit. And so that's what we saw on the run-up to Thanksgiving, of extremely active court system, as it, as it always is. But these were cases that highlighted, for those of us who look at, monitor, think about, and wonder how we can make our court systems, if we haven't given up hope. Many people have. Many people are jaded. I used the matrix the matrix. That's what it felt like being in the matrix when you watch this plea. But I use the markers of what I discuss, the active method, you know, being active, being a change agent, having a community. And I thought about, you know, when we think of how to move yourself from a non, not being a victim to a mindset to being a change agent. And when I said, let me apply this, that method that I use, let me apply it to these different jury verdicts, court decision sentencing, and see if it's applicable. And I have to be honest with you that because there were so many extremes that came out of the court system, that it didn't seem as if it was could be accurately and fairly applied. So I think at the end of the day, looking at these decisions, looking at the judicial process, you have to decide whether you have apathy, you feel hopeless, or if you can be inspired by your need. You're listening to this show. You're listening to these episodes because you believe that there's a possibility that the community that you live in and that the systems that run it, that organize us, that they can work for us. So don't be hopeless. <laughs> don't hide under your bed with your comforter, which is when I was waiting for the verdict in the Aubrey cases, which is what I felt like doing. But join me each week, each show for ways that we can continue to 
inspire each other to be the change that our kids, that our next generation, that our nieces, that our nephews, that our neighbors, that the students in our high schools and our elementary schools are counting on us to do. We have the power, we have the ability, we have the thought process, and we have each other. So I hope that you enjoy the start of this holiday season. I'm officially kicking it off right here, and I will be back next week with another episode. As always, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening and be well. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship this information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances you should review your particular circumstances with an attorney all liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed